Peter was adamant. The Peter with the last name of Pan. He proclaims, I won't grow up. I don't want to wear a tie. And a serious expression in the middle of July. And if it means I must prepare to shoulder burdens with a worried air, I'll never grow up, never grow up, never grow up. Not me. Because growing up is awfuler than all the awful things that ever were. I'll never grow up, never grow up, never grow up. No, sir. Not I. Not me. So there. Peter Pan for us this morning. I wonder what fears he had about growing up. I wonder if he feared what he had to give up, what he had to let go, what might be required of him. For whatever reason, he was adamant about not growing up. I think, spiritually speaking, you and I can be in that same mindset. We aren't as emphatic about it as Peter, and yet sometimes you and I lack the desire the drive, to grow in Christ, to grow in our faith. And I don't know what fears accompany that choice. Perhaps we fear what we'll have to give up if we grow up, what we'll have to let go of. Perhaps we might fear what's required of us if we become grown-ups in Christ. Or perhaps it's just that we don't want to put forth the effort to go through the growing pains of being more like Christ. But the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. You and I must bring spiritual childhood to an end. Set it aside. Embrace adulthood in Christ. Grow in our faith. Devoted disciples are always growing. Are you growing? Do you desire to grow? I think we might if we understood the vastness of our salvation. And so the Apostle Paul continues, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. What we do know now, it's not all that we will know, and so we must continue to grow. The dim view that we have now, no matter how much we know, is going to give way to the glory and the radiance and the brilliance of face-to-face knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so always we must be growing, always seeking fuller, clearer understanding of Christ and the salvation to which He has called us. Our goal, if we are devoted disciples, is to always be growing in Christ. And that's what we're going to talk about as we return this morning to 1 Peter chapter 1. 
and into chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to take them now and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. When you found your place, let's stand together so that we might hear, read the word of the living God. First Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. This is the word of the Lord. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy, and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's pray together. Father, how we thank you for your word, your living word, called by you the the bread of life. Father, we pray that you would break it to us this morning. Feed our souls, nourish our souls as we come to your powerful, life-giving, life-transforming word. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. In these first verses of chapter 2 this morning, Peter puts just one goal before us. And you find that goal in the second part of chapter, of verse 2, and it's this, that you may grow up into salvation. Grow up. Tells us that our faith must always be growing, always increasing, always becoming greater. Now the Holy Spirit inspires Peter to masterfully, Eliminate any argument against or excuse that you and I might have for not growing in Christ. And he doesn't do it with a silly Peter Pan illustration. But he does it by putting before them this stop them in their tracks kind of question in verse 3. The question is this. Have you tasted that the Lord is good. And by tasted, Peter means, have you in your mind known? And have you in your emotions experienced that the Lord is good? Peter already knows the answer to that question. It's yes. And he wants every person reading or hearing this letter to articulate In their own mind, if not allowed, the answer to that question, and maybe we should do that this morning. Say it aloud. Have you tasted that the Lord is good? Let's try it one more time. Have you tasted that the Lord is good? The answer is always yes. Because Jesus was very emphatic on the occasion when he said, 
God is good. Though there may have been a few unbelievers in the pews at the various churches to which this letter was sent, Peter is predominantly writing to those who are believers in Christ. And if they are believers in Christ, they've experienced the goodness of the Lord. And so what Peter's doing is trying to stir up in their minds the sweet-tasting memories of the goodness of the Lord, the sweet feelings of the goodness of the Lord, so that they will long for more and more of it. Having six grandchildren now, four years old or younger, I've been reminded of the eating habits of babies. If they like the taste of what you're feeding them, say those yummy peaches, their mouth flies open and you cannot feed them quickly enough. Is that a true story? If they don't like the taste of what you're feeding them, say, for example, those yucky, mushy peas, then their mouths clamp shut so tightly that I don't believe even the jaws of life could pry them open. The point is, we want more and more of what we like, of what tastes good to us. And so so instead of lecturing these believers, Peter simply points them to Christ because he knows Jesus is so good. And he knows that the goodness of Christ will be like honey to these believers, sweeter than honey, as Scripture says. And the more they feast on the goodness of the Lord, the more they will grow, the more we will grow. You know, even when David was locked up in the prison of a rival king, and even when he had to pretend that he was insane to the point of faking, foaming, at the mouth, in order to protect his life, even then, in a situation we wouldn't think sounded good or felt good, David writes, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And so I challenge you this morning, as I challenge myself to think about the goodness of the Lord that we've tasted in our lives, to go over those good moments again and again. And I dwell on this because it seems an everyday practice. Many believers don't have the goal that Peter has before us in our lives. We have a bit of Peter Pan-itis. And we are satisfied with where we are in the Lord. We are content with where the Lord first brought us, when He brought us to faith. But the Christian life, it's about growing, being challenged by the truth of God's Word and changing your thinking and changing your living, changing your relating accordingly. Peter, he heard Jesus, talk about growing. And not just in a didactic teaching, but in stories. Jesus knows 
how you and I are made. He knows how we're wired. He knows how to connect with us, and so he did it with this important issue by telling stories. He told the story of the tiny mustard seed. It was so small, the tiniest of all seeds. But what happened? It grew. It grew into a mighty tree where the birds of the air could make their nests. As we read earlier in the service this morning, he told about that seed that fell on good earth and it produced a hundredfold. Growth is the goal that the Lord has for us. The Apostle Paul reinforces it. He writes to the Colossians, We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. He writes, These several verses to the Corinthians. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Growth. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. But our hope is that your faith will increase. And then to the Thessalonians he writes... We ought always to give thanks to God for you because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. To the Ephesians, he writes, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way unto him who is the head into Christ. And so we have this wide swath covering all these various churches with this one common call to grow in Christ. Again, Peter says here, grow up into salvation. Into salvation. See, I believe that sometimes we don't grow because we believe we have arrived. There's nothing else to know because we know salvation so well because we've made it so small. We might have equated it to walking an aisle and praying a prayer. But listen, salvation is huge. In Hebrews chapter 2, it's called a great salvation. Salvation is vast. You know, I feel like preachers myself included, are always attempting to put these common Christian words in a new light some way. Because we know that sometimes they fall on ten ears. Words that are are so common that we don't meditate on them anymore. Or we think they know what they mean or all that they mean. And salvation is one of those words. How can we look at it differently? To grasp it differently? To understand it more fully, the word that came to my mind was not salvation, but salvage. Salvage. And both of those words, salvage and salvation, come from the same Latin word anyway. And salvage means to save goods from damage. 
or destruction, to save valuable things from loss. Now listen, if you're going to keep coming to Redeemer, you're going to have to watch the movie Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. You're going to have to watch it. I've already referenced it before. I told you that I had a Chitty Chitty Bang Bang lunchbox from first grade to sixth grade because I was so obsessed with cars. Well, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, as this racing car came to be known, took the European racing world by storm. It won the 1907 and 1908 British Grand Prix. It won the French Grand Prix of 1908. It won the German Grand Prix of 1908. And then, in 1909, tragedy struck. A fiery crash from which Chitty Chitty Bang Bang was taken to the yard of an old junk collector and abandoned there except for Jeremy and Jemima Potts, who loved to come and play in the broken-down, burned-out, rusting-away car. One day a very wicked man came, and he offered to buy the junk car from the junk dealer. And when Jeremy and Jemima protested, they said, you can't buy him. When they said, you can't take Chitty Chitty away, he said, oh, I will, and I will take this car, and I will melt it down in a very hot furnace. Well, the children rushed home to their father, and they told him of the horrible fate that awaited Chitty, Chitty, bang, bang, and so their father raised money to buy that car, to salvage it, to save it. To rescue it from the junkyard and the fiery furnace. But he didn't just salvage the car. To leave it in the front yard to continue rusting. They only do that in West Virginia. If you're a visitor, I'm from there, so I get to tell those jokes. No, he took the car to the garage. And he worked tirelessly, day and night, until it emerged A blindingly, shiny, stunning car. More glorious than it had ever looked before. Able to do more than it could ever do before. Not only could it now speed down the road effortlessly, it could fly high in the sky. Or if need be, it could float like a boat in the water. That was the salvaged Chitty, chitty, bang, bang. You see, movies tell these stories over and over again because there's, there's gospel in them. And that's why they resonate with people. God has salvaged us. He saved us. Not so that we can keep doing the same thing in a different place. God didn't just move us off of one trash heap and put us on another and abandon us there. No. His salvation is too great, too huge for that. Our salvation is not a static, one-time event, but instead it's a dynamic entrance into a vast reality, saved by God, saved for God. For what purpose? Well, there's the vastness of salvation, isn't it? So many questions to pursue, so many facets of our salvation to discover, to explore. 
We never arrive at the fullness of our salvation, the fullness of our faith, until Christ returns. And so our faith must be ever-increasing. And so we're going to finish this morning by looking at how Peter tells us here that we will grow. And it's a very simple two-step process in order to grow. Putting off and putting on. Step one, putting off. Step two, putting on. So first, putting off. Look in verse two. Peter writes, So put away all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Now the word that Peter uses here for put away is the same word that was used for changing your clothes. Same word. Put off, change your clothes. Now I find this very interesting. And usually I try to withhold these things that I find interesting because they might bore you, but I thought this was very interesting. Many commentators think that First Peter as a letter was really written as a catechism guide for the sacrament of baptism. And they believe that in the early church, after verse 21 of chapter 2 was read, and that verse is this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. At that point, they believe the new convert was then baptized. And while I don't believe that that is the purpose of 1 Peter, it's interesting to connect what Peter writes here in chapter 2 with baptism. Because in the early church, as far back as to the church of the apostles, the person being baptized took off their own clothes, the water was put upon them, and then they were given new clothes, gospel clothes to put on. That's beautiful imagery, isn't it? Shedding the old, putting on the new. Since you've been born again by the Word of God, that new life must be different. A marked difference must be evident between your old life that you've put off and your new life in Christ. None of the meshing of the two. And the things that Peter lists here, malice, envy, hypocrisy, those are the old ways of thinking. Those are the old ways of operating. Those are the old ways of getting what you wanted. Those are the old ways of managing and manipulating people and promoting yourself. Those things must be put off, laid aside. This is the teaching of Scripture. Ephesians 4.22 Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Colossians 3 Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of of its creator. And how could we leave out Zechariah 3, the vision he saw, Joshua, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, who is the pre-incarnate Christ, clothed with filthy garments. The angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to Joshua he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, 
and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. See, in saving us, God has given us new clothes. And you and I have to put them on every day. Put off the old, put on the new. And perhaps that's why we don't like to grow up. We don't want to grow up. It's easier in our lives, isn't it, if we're being honest, not to make the distinction between the old and the new. We get along so much better with our culture when that line is blurred, do we not? If we stay spiritual Peter Pans, we think all will be okay. Nothing to give up. Nothing to let go of. Nothing required. That's not an option. For the believer in Christ, we must grow. And here's the good news. You and I don't have to do it on our own. We don't have to do it under our own power. No. We come then to step two, which is putting on. Look in verse two. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. See, we are putting off... And we're putting on, we're putting on the Word of God. That's what Peter means here. When he says pure spiritual milk, he's talking about the life-giving Word of God. He's talking about opening ourselves up to this Word. Opening our mouths wide to receive God's Word. To crave it like a child craves milk. Peter's point is not to say that we are infants in our faith. And that we're only ready to drink milk. No, that's the Apostle Paul and that's in a different place. Peter's point is that like a child longs for that milk, we should throughout our lives long for the Word of God. To have a desire for it, Psalm 42. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. Psalm 84, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord, my heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. And so it seems to always come back to this, doesn't it? Always comes back to the Word of God. We love Christ, the living Word, best. We know Christ, the living Word, best when we know Him. And love Him through the Word that He wrote for us. Through the Word that He has preserved and protected so that we might hold it in our hand even on this day in this very moment. We can only grow through our commitment to the Word of God by putting off the old and and discovering the new. The new in here. The new way of thinking. The new way of acting. The new way of relating. And that's why Peter has already elevated this word in chapter 1. And we've already looked at it. He's already told us it's the living word. It gives us life. He's already told us that this word is eternal. It will last forever. It's not going to fail. It's not going to fall. It's not going to fade. That's the word of the Lord. In case you didn't have time to read it, I want to call your attention to the quote that's at the beginning of your bulletin. 
Can you open up there to the first page? This is from the famous 17th century Puritan preacher Thomas Brooks. It's not the bee's touching of the flower that gathers honey, but her abiding for a time upon the flower that draws out the sweet. It's not he who reads most, but he who meditates most who will prove the choicest, sweetest, wisest, and strongest Christian. And now you know why I want us to memorize the Word of God together this summer. Psalm 139, because salvation is vast. We must grow in it. We must put off the old. We must put on the Word. Let's pray. Father, help us to do these things, we ask. Give us a deep longing to grow more and more in you. Give us a dissatisfaction with where we are now. And Father, it matters not where we are in this moment. It's not a scale. Wherever we are right now, there's more to know, more to understand. There is a vastness to your being that we will not fathom or plummet even throughout all eternity. Give us a vision, Lord, of that kind of glory so that the desire of our heart is to grow in you. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.